Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is April Mullen, a director and producer whose television credits include episodes of Killjoys, Winona Earp, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and this month's Netflix series Tiny Pretty Things. Her features include Rock, Paper, Scissors, The Way of the Tosser, 88, Below Her Mouth, and the brand new Wonder, which stars Aaron Eckhart as a troubled conspiracy theorist investigating a mysterious death in a small town. It co-stars Tommy Lee Jones, Heather Graham, and Catherine Winnick, and it's just arrived on VOD. April picked Run, Lola, Run, Tom Teichfer's 1998 indie sensation about a young woman racing around Berlin trying to get her hands on 100,000 marks to save her boyfriend from the gangsters he's about to disappoint. Using elements of video games, time loop thrillers, pulp romance, and music videos, and built around the absolutely committed performance of Franco Patente as the desperate, determined hero, Run Lola Run created a one-of-a-kind experience for moviegoers by giving them that experience no fewer than three times. Pretty cool. This is someone else's movie. Run, Lola, Run had a heavy impact. I saw it for the first time while I was theater school at Ryerson University. And I remember watching it and just realizing how brilliantly something could be crafted through shots, uh, intention, music, performance, production value, costume design. It seemed like everything was so married and tightly tied in this perfect bow. And I thought it was such a an incredible directorial feat and something to aspire for, especially because it felt like it was within reach. It was made for $2 million. So it was like, had that indie vibe and that indie spirit, which I truly um, come from. That's kind of, you know, I started from the ground up with seven people on my crew and no money of kind of like a sneeze (laughs) of a budget. Um, So, and then it, you know, globally was a commercial success as well as kind of an art house and festival success and its box office was also you know huge uh in comparison to its budget and for you know 1998 I just to me it was a resounding success of what could be achieved if you are well prepared innovative and really clear with your intention and, and what you want to achieve with your budget and I just thought it was brilliant yeah I um I mean, I remember seeing it in nine in I guess it must have been a tiff in ninety eight and it was like being hit in the face with a shovel because um, <laughs> it it watching it now and we re, it turned out uh Kate had never seen it, my wife and I watched it last night, so we watched it and it had been i'm guessing at least fifteen years since I'd seen it, and I was really impressed at not just its efficiency but how simple it is how it holds up so well and you know like it's it does it's, it's so it analog now too mm-hmm. and it's completely stands the test of time and i think that that makes you know it to be a great classic and says a lot about the themes of the film they're universal and they are you know timeless in a lot of ways and you know when when watching it again too i i forgot about how classic these kind of like gimmicky long zooms are and push-ins and kind of black and white and all of these things which normally are seen as gimmicks just because it was set in such a strong it it almost surpassed all of those and it did nothing felt in any way 
gimmicky, which is a very hard thing to do when you're, you know, achieving a unique and original voice and you want to use all of these tools that you have as a filmmaker, which heighten the world and push, you know, push the intention and, and really, uh, you know, amplify the script and make your adrenaline rush. But somehow it rises above all of that. And I think it's just this, again, this theme that runs current with the actual theme of the film, which is time. And, and, and I love that somehow he got away with all of those things, like those power zooms and those like really intense close-ups. And, and it's just very rare. Can you get away with gimmicks like that? I, you know, you, and they were just flawless in this film. Yeah. The, the visual um, energy of it, I guess I would use as, as a term. It's it's propulsive. There's momentum established from the very beginning. And it doesn't, the thing that really struck me this time is how little it cares if you were into it. It just starts. I mean, it's got yeah. this, this, in, this high speed um, lecture, which it turns out is uh, narrated by a, a German uh, voiceover artist who was instantly recognizable in Germany. I didn't know this. He's a guy who reads fairy tales. It would be like... Um, Oh, I can't even remember his name, but the the guy who read Fractured Fairy Tales on Bullwinkle, yes. right? Yes. Growing up, yes. it would be like that, uh, addressing an adult film uh, audience and instantly telling you that this is kind of a fable. The thing about the clock, I remember the first time I saw it thinking that it it felt like it was padding in a way. Because I did too, because the film's so short. Yeah. I thought the animation and the whole long title sequence was padding because at the time I thought, they were probably struggling to make ends meet with how short the film was, but I love how it's all so condensed. <laughs> yeah, it needs to be. And I, I you know, when I first saw it, uh, it was 80 minutes long and I thought, oh, that's, and they, and, and I'd heard the premise, which is that it plays out the same 20 minutes over and over. And it's like, oh great. So that's four sequences. And there were only three. And I remember thinking, I feel cheated somehow, but this is my brain lying to me. <laughs> and then on revisits, that opening sequence with the clock imagery and the and the crowd and everything, it's so essential to get you into the space the movie occupies before you get there because otherwise people would just, I think, have rejected it out of hand. I mean, think about how the other film I was using as a, as a point of comparison is The Matrix, which was made around the yes. same time, similarly uses music and image in the same way, but not consistently. Um, mm -hmm. it's got, it's got info dumps. It's got conversations. It's got 40 minutes before we really understand the world that we're in and run Lola run. It's like, you have three minutes to get comfortable in your chair and here we go. And, and it's, because it's only an 80 minute film, get ready. This is all you've got. <laughs> yeah. And it does not stop. It just it doesn't. And I love, like you said, the intro, like that weird kind of claymation, the clock and you sort of enter into the mouth of the clock. It's sort of setting and then the, you know, the soccer ball goes flying up into the air and it sort of sets the tone that life is a game. This is a game. It's going to be watched like you're almost in a, a video, like a, a, a game going through as a character and you have three different roads you can choose. And I, I think that the filmmaker too, I love that. I've read a few articles and it's just that really believing Every single thing you do, whether you step left or right, has a heavy impact, not only on yourself, but on those around you. And those brilliant flashes of photography when she bumps into people on the street each time in each different timeline, the three different timelines, just watching those unfold in different ways, too. I just thought it was so simple. It was done in maybe 15 seconds, but it's such a gigantic universal theme of time 
and time dimension and living in different timelines and are there different timelines going on? And if I go left in this timeline and this life goes on, those people are impacted in a different way and we are all connected globally. I just think in 15 seconds, how do you achieve that? And, and they did because it was such a small, very visual, but visceral. And all those, those photographs seemed really like they were high intense too. There was like high stakes, either winning the lottery or you're bankrupt and you're, you're dead. And you know, and you show the, the mortality of it. It was just like such extremes that it told a story in, in 15 seconds that I, I, as a filmmaker, I don't even know how to just, I stand in awe, <laughs> you know, yeah. just like, I need to respect that because it's a simple device, but yet it has such huge and multiple meanings that globally, no matter what language you speak and this being a German film that just break all molds of language with a visual storytelling medium. That's so simple in its execution. I just think, and it doesn't cost money. It's just like a brilliant tool. Um, and that always impressed me. Tremendously. I think I'm sure it's part of the international appeal, right? They, they clearly judged it to be the best bet to make a film that has very little dialogue or very little dialogue that actually matters, right? Because it's all mm. visual. I, I, even the, you know, the Kuleshov effect stuff of Manny looking at the clocks and Manny looking at the store and, and we don't need to hear the dialogue really. Maybe some of the stuff with Lola's father matters in terms of text, but it's yep. so emotional. It's, it's all told through faces and motion um, and yeah, the, the animated sequence, which at the first, again, first time through, I thought, this is kind of an affectation. It's m probably much, much cheaper than shooting her running down those stairs over and over again and risking a stunt person. I think so. And I, I always went back and forth, like, why did they do that? Because I think they could have achieved that. And then I think I personally, it's like every, I think really setting the tone of each new time sequence showing the audience with that cool kind of steady one or going into the TV was saying like, we're going into the game now. It is a game. Look, it's an animated version of her. And then it brings us into reality. It was such a unique choice. Like at first I thought, I don't know if I was into it, but then I absolutely loved it by the end because it was something that was replicated, obviously a hint different each time. But I think it was just to allow us to say, okay, here goes the game again. We're back in. Yeah. And it makes it easier to take the violence that happens and the and the and the tragic endings of the two two the first two stories because it's going to reset. It's going to be okay. These aren't necessarily really real people. But at the same time, Patente and Blibtro are just so human. Um mm -hmm. and I I've this time through I really noticed too, not only does the camera love Franca Patente, but oh. the, to the point where you can hang entire scenes on her shoulders and head and the back of yes. her body. Yes. Like, and it's kind of a Tomb Raider view. And I think that's part of the animated sequence as well, is it gives you that, that rhythm of just a running and jumping game. Mm -hmm. But the scenes they have, the quiet scenes, the interstitials of the two of them in bed together, it's just so soft and quiet and real that I... Like, I'm amazed this film can accommodate that because it doesn't have time for anything else. And you see all the other relationships that are unfolding around them that don't have that. Her her father and his, um, his lover, his girlfriend, his mistress are just, it's cold and clinical. Even when she's telling him she might be carrying his child, it's, and it's shot on video instead of film, yes. which again, yes. I'm not sure why, but it works. It works. And I think I read an article saying it was meant to just feel even more real to life, like almost like a surveillance camera watching them. Oh. And same as like the when um, the homeless man on the train kind of gets the money, it's shot again 
just on a home cam, which makes it feel even more real and surreal uh, opposite their kind of more cinematic elements. But I love what you were saying with how does the film make room for those intimate moments between the two of them? Because if you're going on this journey with them, you want to believe that their love is like live or die. And at one point she mentions that he's been my boyfriend for a year, you know, and it's something so in a way hilarious, but that's how love is. If you're in, you're so invested. And how do you show that in a film, which is lightning bolt fast and give space and keep their attention just enough and show just a tiny chapter of both of their biggest moments before they die of what's, what makes you love that person, the impact that that person makes in like a 30 second draped in red lighting, intimate conversation after I'm assuming an amazing, like, you know, love affair moment, like whatever that might be. I love that they just both feel so vulnerable each time. They're both kind of very insecure as love would make you. And they're both saying real life things. They're unpolished, they're sweaty, you know, it's messy and it's just in bed. And it's almost like you get to sit there as a fly on the wall watching and nothing's pushed about it. And, and in those tiny little chapters, you then take their love on as like the greatest gift. Like they can defy time. They can break the molds of time because they have to, <laughs> because, you know, and how do you again achieve that in under two minutes? It's unbelievable that that was able to allow us to invest in their love story when in a way a year is kind of laughable. They're just dating. They're young. It kind of feels Romeo and Juliet-ish, but because of those two little tiny scenes, every audience member is like, we're in it. We're fighting for you guys. <laughs> you know, Like yeah. that's again, as a writer director, you're just like that, that is very difficult to do and make it feel so just natural yeah, it's it's the overwhelming commitment of the actors, obviously, but also the the time loop aspect, which is a lot easier to digest yeah. now, I think, right? Because we're we're soaking in it. Everything is definitely like we we understand the concepts of the time loop thing, and and the rules aren't totally clear in this case because Lola does it the first time, Manny does it the second time. Maybe mm -hmm. <laughs> we really have no idea if anyone is in control, and um, what you get is this this sense of two people who are. Yeah, I was going to say Lola seems more willing to sacrifice anything for Manny because he's not the best <laughs> criminal. Like, he doesn't seem like he's terribly good at any of this. And his his response is always to blame someone else, which I think is fascinating because that's a consistent behavior that happens throughout the entire uh, movie, through all three cycles, is that it's never his fault. Something bad happened. It's Lola's fault she didn't pick him up. It's the police's fault because he had an instinctive reaction. Nothing is his, Nothing is ever on him. And every choice he makes is disastrous. Like he's he's yes. getting them dig deeper Into and deeper trouble. Yeah, yeah. And but, I love that at the time when I did see it, it was very apparent to me that he was the damsel in distress and she was the action star, kind of fighting her way for him. And I think at that time I hadn't seen a lot of female-led action, you know, whatever you want to call this action thriller. Um, act, I don't even know how you would define the film, um, but it was a huge for me at the time it was a huge kind of flip-flop on the sort of damsel in distress and hero of the film being a female for the first time, at least in my mind, where it actually made an impact and I was actually aware enough and sort of um, mature enough to be aware of that for the first time. And, and that really, you know, was exciting and new. 
Yeah. And she is, I mean, she's undeniably smarter than he is. She's the one who can strategize <laughs> yeah. and make plans and get places and do things. And his only real instinct is to rob a store to get the money he lost. The, the, he, he doesn't seem to have much more going on. And then we have the bedroom scenes and you get it. Yes. You you get their relationship. And and I think yes. it's it's just such a great choice to not have that the first time through, to just introduce us to her rather than him. Yep. And sets her up fill in the blanks of why she cares definitely i would agree with that and it was such a strong choice to allow us as the audience to invest in her and and allow her to be the main character and in the glimpses of her home life like her father's absent and and uninterested in anything her mother is apparently a drunk apparently a drunk yeah we see her with one drink i don't know how bad that is um but She's and she lives at home, which again, like I, we don't really know how old this person is. She's old enough to have gotten some pretty elaborate tattoos, and uh, <laughs> to be in in this relationship. But I mean, I think what well, Patenti was like twenty four or twenty five when they shot it, and I think she's playing a little younger. But that also feeds into the thing that was going on at the moment. And you're right, there weren't a lot of of female led anything's at the time. But no. this is like writing after. It hit me this time through that like it's the perfect synthesis of Groundhog Day and Train Spotting, where the mm-hmm. energies of all those things and the ideas that were floating around uh, collects and putting a woman in the lead just focuses it all completely differently, so that you don't come out thinking, "Oh, this is just a Train Spotting knockoff where people are doing crimes and running around." But no, it's because of Franco Patente that the thing has life. And I, mm-hmm. yeah, if it was a if it was male led, if it was a guy. If it was run Lenny run, I don't think it would be anywhere near as interesting. It would be so different. And Franca Potente, I just thought in the film, she's so unhinged. Like I, her performance is so raw. And every time that, you know, that screeching scream that sets back the time and she sort of forces the the time continuum to be what she wants it to be. I, I thought was so brilliant. Like, one could see that and potentially it could be while well, on set, you know, it'd be terrifying to think, oh God, did we just go too big? you know, how are we going to get away with this? It's it's a 10 out of 10. And not only do they get away with it, it becomes this device that, you know, it's it's in her commitment to that shrieking scream. She's so committed and so unaware of judgment. It's just such a beautiful, like, I also think it is her youth. It's almost like you can feel her youth and her spirit and and there's nothing her holding her back. And I, I just love that feeling of electrifying kind of unhinged unpredictability. And it's like, I am going to shatter the earth because I need it to go my way. And it's as simple as a scream. It's like a scream from her innards. (laughs) And it's, it's an unforgettable image. And I, and very few films dare to go that big because it can always be seen as like cartoony, laughable over the top, but I don't think anywhere or anyone believes that to be anything huge or over the top. It's just like so grounded in her intentions of like, I need to stop time and force it to go this certain direction. And she just does it in a, in a, again, a shriek, which those, those, those iconic shrieks are just always have been implanted in my brain because of how, um, you know, intense they were and how successful they were. (laughs) Yeah, it's um I I thought of it as life points or something if to yes. continue the game analogy like she's just blowing everything out. It's it's her power. Um and it's a uh, it's a moment yeah, the the first time it happens it seems weird. 
The second time, um, stuff just sort of shatters around her. The second time in in the bank, it's frightening. And then by the time it happens in the casino, and it just goes on and on and on, the movie's celebrating it. It's loving (laughs) this. It is. It is. It is. And I, you know, the ending, while watching it for the first time and kind of, you know, watching others watch it for the first time, I never, it was never predictable. Like I never thought they would end up in a happily ever after situation. For some reason, it still surprised me that it it worked out. And I mean, who's to say, it's kind of like, which timeline are we gonna end up living in? It just so happens that the film ends on that timeline, but what did we really choose, you know, the first or the second version? And where are we actually in the continuum? Are we in all three? Are we just kind of, this slice of life just happens to end on the third one, which happens to be good and it doesn't continue. Like, is there 10 of 10 versions and the other ones are just as tragic. Like I love, it's, it's so like um, casual in its ending. Like he walks over, gives her a smooch, they hold hands and they just walk into the death, into the sunset. And you're just like, what? After all of that, you're just going to give this kind of casual ending, but in a way it also allows the audience to be left hanging. And like, again, thinking, are there other timelines? Is this the one we actually ended in? Or is it the other two? I just thought I loved how kind of lackluster in a way the ending was, but yet it was so prolific and heavy with meaning. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a unique, very unique ending. Yeah. Well, which direction are they going to go in? Right. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's a perfect summation of, of all of it. And I, I, I do think they earn this ending or at least Lola does simply because yes. she does the thing that she's never done before, which is pay attention to the security guard. I mean, he's, not a good person. Uh, he seems like he's kind of creepy and weird and teasing her. Mm-hmm. And he plays little power games with her every time they interact. But in the end, she knows him. And that moment in the ambulance, which has been present oh, every time, so right? Beautiful. Because that little that little drop at the end where, of course, of course, a movie like this is going to have the economy to connect everything because there's exactly like, there's no other way to do it, right? If you're the thugs in the car, the ones that we're going to meet, many the guy, yes. in the, the ambulance is the person that we've already seen suffering, but it's so graceful, and it is, and it's so seamless. And, uh, it, that, yeah. and it's quiet. It's a quiet moment too, and an intimate moment. And and they keep going on the hands and just the simplicity of the human touch. And yeah, I love how graceful all of the connections were. And I appreciate it so much. Even the guy on the bike, and then it becomes, you know, the, you know, with the homeless man who gets to have the bike and how finally that's how they get them. Everything is just so very eloquently placed in the frame, but so perfectly done to come back to it and give heavier meaning to it. Yeah. I'm I'm really surprised, I guess, although maybe I shouldn't be, that that Tykver has never done anything else as as solid, as, as enclosed. Yeah. And as like, I don't know, like it felt to me that he gave it his all. Like in even in the music, it's like if I could be a heartbeat. Like I feel like he actually encapsulated what it was to be a heartbeat in that beat. The music feels like the heartbeat, the walks. I think it's like 120 beats per minute of the whole film still has that. Like there's this rhythm and this impeccable kind of bold, very bold choices uh, that he seemed, again, it's kind of like the curse of when you're young. Like I remember our first few feature films because you're so in a way unaware 
and you're not like used to criticism and the, and, and the critics and the festivals and what they're going to say. And that kind of shrinks your world. And then unfortunately forces you to question before you create your next film, what you're going to do and how you're going to, you know, achieve those films. And it, it almost gets overanalyzed before it has time to breathe. And as a young filmmaker, sometimes your best work or not your best, but your most unhinged alive, if I was a heartbeat, that kind of feel, that kind of heart and vulnerability and sort of unaware of like what the potential judgments might be. You just put it all in there, your whole skin, your whole blood, your whole life, your spirits, your memory, your energy, everything you have is in that first, you know, few films. And it's hard to get that innocence back, that almost unaware um, naivete back once you kind of are jaded, not jaded, but you know what I mean? The industry is an industry. Uh, it's heavily criticized. And and so it goes and, and people watch your movie and they'll say, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, heart or no heart. And it's just, it's a harsh reality. And after 20 years of getting the backlash of that, it, it affects the way you make movies. And I think because it was one of his first, you know, big swings, it had this unhinged, beautiful innocence to it that just went with it. He just went with all of his brilliant, imaginative kind of new innovative ideas that he, you know, wanted to, didn't think about it, didn't think about it, except really thought about it when he was planning it, but didn't overthink the outcome of what those choices would have been. Yeah. It feels like a movie that has to be what it is like that. that it, mm-hmm. If if you take notes, it's going to derail. It's going to just <laughs> fall apart. And yeah, it does happen, doesn't it? I mean, you start steering into the skid, right? The expectations of what'll get funded or what'll be popular or what'll get this. What's commercial? Date. What's not? What's art house? What's not? Like it just what would get in Sundance and what won't? And really, at the end of the day, I think uh, uh, truly, it's just speaking your truth, and that's all you have to stick you know, but that's harder said than, you know, you're trying to get things financed. You're trying to convince producers to pick up your projects and private investors to invest. And you need certain amount of stars. And um, it all becomes about industry instead of sort of raw creativity, which I think that is kind of, again, the electrical kind of impulsive um, thing we love about Run the La Run because it's so unhinged. Yeah. The Beats per minute thing is absolutely essential. And, and again, in 1998, there weren't movies that were doing that. No. There were movies that had club sequences. That's as close as it got. And I I, I guess uh, Go, which came out the next year, has a certain uh, familiarity, a resonance with it, because it does play with time, but it doesn't do the same things that Run the Little Run mm-hmm. does. But it's all like that post-Tarantino wave where everyone was trying to capture something by doing the same thing. And Tykeford just mm-hmm. said, no, I think I got it. We're going to try it this way. And yeah, yeah, it's unreplicated. There really isn't anything. I mean, there are, again, we were talking about time loops. There are hundreds of them now, but I don't think anything else works the way this one does. And yeah, and it no, still and I works. Think, like you said, a lot of um, creative people to this day borrow from that, um, you know, and I, I read somewhere that he, he wanted it to feel like a blow to the mind. And it does. It just feels like you're, you're stuck against a wall and then it just kind of like comes right at you. It's a blow to the mind and then it's gone. And it was, it's more of an experience than it is sort of a long kind of invested narrative, classical kind of feature film. It's just, 
it's an experience yeah. and then, and then it leaves you, but then it never does really truly leave you. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, it derailed the day at TIFF. I think I was, I think I, that would have been one of the, the days I was seeing four or five movies that is um, just going from screening to screening to screening and you just wobble out going, no, okay. I, I, I don't think I'm going to see anything else like that this year, let alone exactly. Today. Exactly. It's amazing to me, like the whole time continuum and time loop, even TV series. Like I've done, I want to say two, one with Winona Earp. And I think one with Legends of Tomorrow, where we did a time loop and a back in time loop. And of course, like, because I'm like, Oh, run little run. I'm so pumped. <laughs> you know, I, I did a hint and an homage to like the heavy push in and the zoom. And I did a few of those bird's eye shots, which I love. Like, you know, how you were saying even the back of her head somehow is, uh, you know, energetic and entertaining and the back, you know, I love that he shoots from above so much in sort of this bird's eye view. And I tried to, you know, put those into, um, the very few, you know, time kind of warpy episodes that I've done. But I think everybody was impacted by this and it was one of its, you know, the first of its kind. And um, it's kind of like the grandfather of time <laughs> continuum choices and warps and what that means. And uh, whether people know the film or not, so many North American features and series have pulled from this feature. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's the dynamism, right? Because the uh, the opposite, the other one is Groundhog Day, where no, there are no special effects and nothing um, to to enter into the fantastical other than the concept. And I love yes. that about it. I think it's. I think it's wonderful that you know Harold Ramis made a philosophical inquiry out of that. Um, but for the the post Groundhog Day universe, where I mean, Legend says that. Uh, that great throwaway reference in that one episode to the fun montage where they just know that like, that's how this works when you're in a time loop, you're supposed to enjoy yourself a little bit. Yes. Th those all come back to this, I think where we are encouraged, even though it's life or death and there's no time to, th to think and Lola's not having a good day. We get to enjoy uh, the, the, like the relentless energy that she has and the, and the, the film's pleasure in what it's doing um in and the just the the sense of of play because it is presenting itself as a literal game but also because the film is encouraging us to enjoy ourselves um and treat it as a slightly depersonalized experiment rather than take it so seriously and and worry too much um which again that opening sequence which i originally did not care for <laughs> it's so essential definitely definitely and i think um, you know, for younger filmmakers, I, the enthusiasm of making something so eccentric and in a lot of ways experimental in terms of its storytelling really pushed me. You know, I, I did a feature film called 88 and it was about a fugue state, which was grounded in reality and grounded in a medical condition. But, you know, I think when you see something that achieved not only like a very strong base for storytelling, um, it broke the narrative structure in a lot of ways, but also allowed you to <laughs> go into the world of our heroes and still have empathy for them. And that's such an achievement. And I think I've always been aspiring to that in a lot of ways, you know, trying to tell and retell a story in a new and innovative way, but allowing us to still feel connected to our heroes without being too gimmicky where you are torn away from 
you know, wanting to follow their journey as an audience member. It's a very fine line. And uh, I will always aspire to try and achieve that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to figure out if Wonder has a, the similar sort of um, uh, narrative trickery to it because, and I don't want to discuss the ending. Yeah. In a way, Wander does have themes of, you know, what is real and what is in Arthur's head and what do we want to believe and what is being seen or what is a delusion or, you know, an effect of the mental health crisis that he's going through and possible kind of pills and hallucination, or is it paranoia or is it his own imagination or is this the reality of him on, you know, discovering the truth about his biggest nightmare, which is the conspiracy um, that caused, you know, his family's death. And I think at the end of the film, there are two totally different versions where the, the audience can either believe that what he's seeing is truly real and um, the truth will be set free and, you know, the silent warrior has won. Or is it that he had to come to terms with grief and the guilt and this was his way to come to a reconciliation and sort of live out the rest of his days with, you know, the heavy burden of losing your family. And, you know, it can go either way. I mean, in my world, I hope that people feel freedom and hope, but there's also the other side, which the whole time the film is kind of guiding you towards. So uh, I don't think that gives too much away because I think it'll be an interesting thought uh, for people to, you know, the unreliable narrator is our theme and and that's where we came from. And it was a place of truth. And and hopefully people are allowed to discuss that and, and wonder. <laughs> My thanks to April Mullen, whose new film Wonder is available right now to watch on the VOD platform of your choice. Thanks also to Celine Onrad. She knows what she did. You can find April at AprilMullen88, all one word with numerals, and you can find Run Lola Run on Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.